Have you watched the series The English Game on Netflix? Well, I think you should. It's a fascinating dive into how football went from an aristocratic to a popular sport in the late 19th century England. Well, today it is so popular that it became a valuable business to do statistics on the game and its players. To talk about that, I invited Kevin Minkus on the show. He's a data scientist and soccer fan living in Philadelphia. And Kevin is currently working at Monetate on e-commerce problem. And prior to Monetate, he worked on property and casualty insurance pricing. Kevin is responsible for some of their data management and DevOps, and he recently wrote a guide to football analytics for the Major League Soccer's website, entitled Soccer Analytics 101. To be honest, I had a great time talking for one hour about two of my patients, football and stats. So maybe 2020 isn't that bad after all. Oh, and beyond football, Kevin is also into the digital humanities, web development, 3D animation, machine learning, and the bassoon. This is Learning Bayesian Statistics, episode 25, recorded June 25, 2020. Welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics, a fortnightly podcast on Bayesian inference, the methods, the project, and the people who make it possible. I'm your host, Alex Andorra. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Andorra, like the country, and reach a true Bayesian state of mind by visiting learnbayesstats.anvil.app. That's learnbayesstats.anvil.app. Do you want to support the podcast and unlock exclusive patient swag at the same time? Then you can visit my Patreon page at patreon.com slash stats. Starting at $3, you can get various benefits like the private LearnBased Stats Slack channel, early access to special episodes, selecting questions for episodes, or even coming on the show. You'll get more details at patreon.com slash stats. Thanks a lot, guys. I'm very grateful for any support. Let me show you how to be a good busy and change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. What's a Bayesian? It's someone who cares about evidence and doesn't jump to assumptions based on intuitions and prejudice. A Bayesian makes predictions on the best available info and adjusts the probability because every belief is provisional. And when I kick a flow, mostly I'm watching eyes widen. Maybe because my likeness lowers expectations of tight rhyming. How would I know unless I'm rhyming in front of a bunch of blind men dropping placebo control? Science like I'm Richard Kevin Minkus, welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for taking the time. I'm really glad to be talking about football. That's great. I've been starved of football for three months now, and football is not gonna come back in France before August. So really glad to have this opportunity to vent out my football frustration, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I've been watching plenty of Germany and, and England and stuff, so at yeah. least there's a little bit of that. Yeah, exactly. That's quite nice. We already talked about sports analytics, actually, on the podcast. It was with Chris Fonsbeck by MC3 PDFL on episode two. But Chris is more specialized on baseball, while you are specialized on football or soccer, as you call it, across the Atlantic. So here, I'm going to use soccer, football interchangeably. Uh, sorry, but that's my European bias. For me, football is soccer, so... No, perfectly fine. I'm fine either way. Yeah, I think listeners and you are going to be able to switch between the two. It's pretty clear from the context. <laughs> but before talking about that, let's talk about your background. What's your story and how did you come into the data and programming world, basically? Yeah, so I went to 
college planning to study math, and I took intro to programming my freshman year too. Hmm. Both my parents were computer programmers, uh, at least at one point in their life. Kind of runs in the family, I guess. And I liked it a lot, but mm. I like those computer science courses. <laughs> but the stuff we were actually programming was kind of boring. I didn't care so much about like flipping pancake algorithms or you know, solving pyramids or whatever. And the pure math courses that I took, I found kind of boring too. I was a lot more interested in where those sorts of skills could actually be applied yeah. rather maybe than on the theory of them. Yeah. I also took some economics courses my freshman year, mm-hmm. and what was cool to me was how those courses sort of applied the economic theory that we were learning to be able to explain phenomena and things in a logical way. And so those sort of three interests came together into an interest in data. So the theory I was learning in econ sort of gave me a way to understand data and think about the data generating process behind different economics problems. Whereas the programming and math sort of gave me the skills to actually be able to work on those problems. So eventually I got more into sort of econometrics, which was sort of like a perfect fit between all of those things. I started taking more statistics courses Mm. and then applied math and probability and linear algebra where I could. And so that's sort of how all that came together. Mm -hmm. There are sort of other fields right outside of economics that those get applied to. So I started doing some machine learning work in my computer science classes, learning about computer vision and NLP. Then through Twitter, I found out a bit more about sports analytics. That's kind of where I found the soccer analytics community was on Twitter. (laughs) And so my senior year, I started blogging and writing about soccer analytics as a hobby. (laughs) That's funny. So you're more from the math side of things and probability side of things. But why did you focus on football? Because from my understanding, soccer in the US isn't, at least for now, the most popular sport. Yeah. So I grew up playing soccer. My dad grew up playing soccer, Mm. and so he got me and my brothers into it. And so I've played soccer my whole life, watched soccer. (laughs) When MLS, when Major League Soccer, the American Soccer League started, I was four, I think. Mm. But we were watching games and following it pretty closely then. So I've been a soccer fan my whole life. (laughs) And so it was pretty natural. That would be something I was interested in applying math to. Yeah, so... You're from a soccer family. Do you have a favorite team in the MLS? Yeah, I'm a Chicago Fire fan, so I'm from Chicago. And so I was five or six when they first came into the league. Yeah, We started going to games and following them pretty closely as soon as that happened. That was a pretty big deal in our family. Ah, That's nice. That's nice. Maybe for European listeners, I guess you follow European football. And do you have a favorite team there or are you just enjoying the best games? I don't really have a favorite European team. It's, I'm sort of too divorced from all that. And I spend so much time on my fire fandom that I don't sort of have mm. emotional capacity to dedicate to following another team really closely. So I mostly <laughs> watch teams I like or players I like. I like watching Americans. So Christian Pulisic on Chelsea. I try and watch most of Chelsea's games. Oh, yeah. Weston McKenney on Schalke. Try and tune in for those guys. Yeah, that's nice. And do you have like a European team right now that you find really appealing to watch? I like Red Bull Leipzig a lot, Oh yeah, which is a bit interesting, right? They're sort of, they've been the poster child for the wrongs of modern football, right? Red Bull bought the team yeah. and then spent a bunch of money to sort of get them promoted to the top of the Bundesliga. So there aren't a lot of people who like Red Bull Leipzig, but I think the way they play is very fun. The sort of up-tempo, high press, yeah. drive the ball directly goal, I think is very entertaining to watch. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. They're really an interesting team to watch playing. I mean, before the quarantine, they performed really well in the Champions League. And lots of people were impressed by what they were doing. 
And yeah, that's an interesting model. And the coach is really a special person in himself. Listeners should go and Google uh, some stories about the coach from Red Bull Leipzig. We don't have time for that on the podcast, but it's really funny. Another team right now in Europe, which is quite nice to see evolve is Atalanta Bergamo, which is in Italy and they perform quite well in the Champions League. That's more, you know, on the romantic side of football, a team that's been prepared and trained for years to be better. So it's nice to have some teams like that in Europe still and in the Champions League. But I'm going more France here. You can already see I love football. I want to ask you before we dive a little deeper into the football analytics side of things, what are you doing nowadays? I'm a data scientist at a company called Kibo. Hmm? I live in Philadelphia, although Kibo is headquartered in Dallas. We have a software platform services for e-commerce, yeah. mostly retail. So it's things like A-B testing, changes to a website, product recommendations, and order management system, the sort of tech that goes into yeah. running online retail mostly. And my role there is sort of research and development focused. So working on things that may or may not become products for our software down the road. Mm. So that's fun. The research and development side is really fun. You get to dive into some deep math some of the time and think about product problems sort of deeply. Mm. Ideally, once we do that research on a project, then we get to move it into production. So I get to do sort of all of the work that goes with that. Some of the product work from demoing a prototype and actually speaking to customers to, you know, passing it around internally, sort of building support behind it. And then actually getting to then scope and do the sort of software engineering Mm. on actually putting the the tool into production. So it's really cool getting to sort of touch all the different parts of that product development lifecycle. That's something that I find very validating about being a data scientist is getting to do the math work plus the product thinking plus the sort of software engineering work. Yeah, yeah, that sounds nice. And it's actually kind of related also on what you're doing on your spare time with football analytics. You're not doing completely different things. That's good for you and for your sanity, mm-hmm. I guess. <laughs> yeah, it, it does uh, does dovetail nicely. <laughs> yeah. Since we're on a patient stats podcast, I'm wondering, and I always ask these questions to the guests, do you remember how you first got introduced to Bayesian methods and how often do you use them today? I didn't learn any Bayesian methods in college. It was mostly been through my boss. Boss Rochford, who is a PyMC contributor, I think, that I was introduced to them. Yeah. So actually, I read some work Austin did on measuring the skill of drawing and conceding fouls in basketball with sort of a Bayesian item response theory model that was very cool. Yeah. And so that was my first real introduction, I think, to Bayesian sets was probably his blog post there. And we corresponded a bit on the internet about it. And that was at the same time I was trying to move to Philadelphia which was very cool. So through that, I was sort of able to parlay that interaction into an interview at his company and then a job, which was very cool. Hmm. And so, yes, yeah, it's mostly been through Austin that I've been introduced to them. We use them at work somewhat. We have Bayesian multi-armed bandits sort of implemented running in production. And I don't always actively develop on those, but I at least have to be familiar with how they work and their mechanics and stuff. We've done research projects for products focused on Bayesian methods in the past. So some Gaussian process work, for example, sort of Bayesian updates to those. Yeah, We've done Bayesian modeling as a way to profit maximize A-B tests. Mm. So you can improve the time you have to run an A-B test if you have an understanding, not necessarily of statistical significance, yeah. which would be the sort of the frequent test approach, but if more and more focused on maximizing profit. Mm. So choosing the proper variant in accordance with how much better we think it is than the worst performing variant, you can do some cool things from with Bayesian methods there. So it depends on the project. Lately, I've been doing more software engineering work mm-hmm. and not as much sort of statsy research and development, but we do have a decent number of Bayesian projects up and running and in flight. 
Yeah, yeah, that's nice. Well done, Austin, for introducing Kevin to Bayesian methods. If you hear us, he's certainly done a good job of evangelizing those within our company. Yeah, plus Austin is also quite well versed in sports analytics, so you guys must have a lot of common ground to talk about. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> and actually, I'm wondering how widespread are Bayesian methods in football analytics? That depends on the use case. So one place they're very popular, or at least very sort of common publicly, are with hierarchical models, particularly like for team strength. Yeah. So you want to predict the scores of games, and sort of a hierarchical model can be a nice way to to get at that. You include like a home field advantage parameter, something for like a team's percentage of available minutes. That's pretty well-tried ground, I think. And Bayesian regression for that is one sort of popular place to turn to. Yeah. There's been work done with hierarchical models using sort of measured team strength across leagues. Mm -hmm. So maybe you have like a global ranking of sort of all of the teams or all the top flight teams in the world and you want to understand how much better, you know, an average Bundesliga team is than an average MLS team or something. Yeah. And so hierarchical models can be like a pretty nice approach for that. Those sort of like mixed effects models are cool. Yeah. So one place that sort of need to use them very specifically is measuring finishing strength. Yeah. So we've done that for the blog I write for, right? So turns out that the ability of a specific player to put the ball in the goal Mm -hmm. sort of beyond just the quality of the shot itself. So beyond something like this is where on the field the shot takes place and in this certain scenario. Yeah. The ability of a player to actually finish his chances, being able to like measure that finishing ability is really difficult. It's really small, mm-hmm. but sort of a mixed effects model can be a good way to get the distribution of finishing skill for a player. Mm. So then you can say things like, okay, right, if we were just sort of doing a freeness approach, this parameter on this player's finishing ability probably won't be statistically significant. But if you get your posterior distribution or something, you can understand, okay, well, how much better than average do we think this player might be at actually kicking the ball in the goal? Yeah. And so that's sort of like a nicely posed use case. Different like particular player skills like that can be really nice to have that sort of mixed effects model with Mm. so that you can sort of parse out that uncertainty very clearly. Yeah. On the whole, they're not super widespread. I'm not sure why that is. Like in my experience, I didn't learn any Bayesian stats in college. It was something I had to get introduced to later. So I think that's probably part of the reason. Yeah, that makes sense. I think it's because people don't really learn them while they're at school. And then if you want to use them, you really have to have a strong incentive to learn them because there can be a big initial cost in learning all new paradigm of statistics, depending on how advanced you are on your statistics journey. I guess it's part of a path dependency. But as you say, that can be kind of weird in the sense that all the scenarios you talked about, modeling scenarios you talked about, really, really make sense to use a Bayesian framework for that perspective because there are hierarchical structure there is like super important. And at the same time, you have to be able to take into account individual effects. So yeah, it really makes sense to use a hierarchical structure on that. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering also how many data do you have? Do you usually have too much data or too many data? Well, so it depends on, there's sort of two data structures that you can work with in soccer. And so one is event level data. Yeah. And so event level data is sort of all of the actions that happen on the ball in a match. Mm. So player A passes to player B at this point in time. Yeah. And so like that, that's not like big data necessarily. You could have like the number of passes in a season, which is probably like the largest data you'd be working with for a given problem is on like the order of hundreds of thousands or something. So it's not like massive and it's certainly like sort of tractable for Bayesian methods. 
The other type of data is tracking data. Teams will put a big camera system in their stadium, although there are companies that are improving on this just from broadcast data, being able to track players. So those cameras, though, track the movement of all of the players and the ball on the field every 10 times a second or something like that. And so that data is quite a bit larger to work with hmm. and maybe doesn't lend itself quite as well to a sort of Bayesian paradigm. Yeah. That's nice. You can use a lot of different analysis. And clearly, if you're in a framework where you don't have a lot of data and you care about uncertainty, then yeah, using the Bayesian framework would be very interesting. And that makes me think also about what you were talking about and the home advantage in particular. How big is it from the data you saw in the US? Is it like a big advantage or is it like milder than what you could find in Europe? It's larger in the U.S. than it is in Europe. Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, home field advantage is something like half a goal. Oh, yeah. So you're spotted half a goal just from playing at home. There aren't any firm consensuses on why that might be. It's a bit smaller in European leagues. It's something like between 0.2 and 0.3, I think, for most of the top European leagues. Some of that probably comes down to travel, right? The size of Germany is just much smaller than the size of the U.S., and you don't have these big West Coast Yeah. Yeah, West Coast road trips, stuff like that. So I think that's probably part of it. Yeah, exactly. You know, like we have derbies games in Europe, like when two teams from either cities very close get to play against each other. I guess like derbies in the US must be Chicago and uh, Montreal uh, <laughs> or, or even Chicago and New York, which are really far, but maybe it's the derby. You know, it's like the size of the country is so big that you can't really make it to all the games of your team during the season. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yeah, it's decently different. MLS is a bit cheaper too. Mm. So in Germany, you might travel by bus or by train to your away games or something. Yeah. MLS, you're flying. Yeah. But there's a limit on the number of charter flights mm. you can take in a season. And so a lot of the time, they're just flying Southwest or American Airlines like everybody else is to get to their games, uh, yeah. which is a little bit crazy. Probably also like factors into that sort of thing. Oh, yeah, I didn't know, but that's quite weird. That's interesting, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay, so that makes sense. And how disparate is it? Because maybe I'm thinking if you're a city more in the middle of the US, maybe your home advantage is less high than Los Angeles, for instance, or I don't know if Philadelphia has a team, but you know, you get my point. How disparate is it? How variable is the home advantage? That's a really good Good question. I don't have a good answer off the top of my head. It's a little bit hard to parse out because of how closely correlated it is with the actual quality of the team. Yeah. So the Colorado Rapids, for example, play at altitude, right? They're like 5,000 feet above sea level. And so what we've seen in other sports is that teams in Colorado tend to have the highest home field advantage. So the Denver Nuggets, for example, have the biggest home court advantage in basketball. Mm. There's a whole lot of years of data that you can sort of leverage to come to that conclusion because the NBA has been relatively stable from year to year. And even the Nuggets' quality, how good they are, has been variable enough, right, that you can sort of come to a decently well-defined estimate of that sort of thing. Yeah. In MLS, the Rapids are the team that play in Colorado, and they have been bad for like the past 10 years, maybe. They've had a few okay seasons in there. The league has also sort of vastly changed in structure over the last 10 years. So even just using the last 10 years of data might not be a great way to gauge something like that. Yeah. So those effects are very closely correlated and it's hard to parse out good home field advantage estimate because of stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. I bet. Because in Europe, some teams are known for having a home advantage, which is clearly less than other teams. Like, you know, for instance, Monaco in France. 
There are almost no public, I mean, compared to big clubs like Marseille or Paris. So here you would expect home advantage to be a lot less. But yeah, you have so many confounding factors that it's, it's super hard. I talk about that with Chris Fonsbeck on episode two, mainly related to the coach performance. Mm. How do you evaluate and how can you even evaluate the coach performance? I think I remember his answer was, it's quite hard because first coaches, the managers change like at most every two or three years. So it's quite hard. Plus you have so many other factors that basically it's very hard right now to know whether your coach made a difference or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the same problem comes through in soccer. The interesting thing about MLS is that it's a single entity league. So rather than any team owning the players' contracts, players actually just sign contracts with the league itself. Oh, okay. So in theory... If MLS was really concerned with such things, they could run a natural experiment every year and randomize all the teams, keep the coaches the same, and then we get sort of a perfect experiment for measuring such things. Oh, that would be awesome. You guys should have a lobbying committee somewhere at the MLS headquarters. You know, every day someone going there and saying, so where are we with the randomized experiments? <laughs> exactly, exactly, yep. Oh, yeah, that would be awesome. That would be one of my statistical dreams. <laughs> yeah, it would be interesting. That's been the cool thing. Yeah. Well, not the cool thing, but right. One of the interesting things we can learn right now with empty stadiums, with these games being played in England and yeah. Germany is sort of what home field advantage effect might be attributable to the fans that are actually in the stadium, which is neat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, in Spain, it's going to be the same thing, I guess, because teams like Real Madrid or Barcelona have huge stadiums which are packed with fans at every game. So yeah, it's going to be interesting to see which difference it makes. At the same time, these teams are a lot stronger than the other teams but you know with the close to border teams like Atletico Madrid and so on that could make a difference it will be interesting to watch actually I wanted to ask you by the way when you do this sort of analytics what's your favorite technical stack you know the one you fire up whenever you do a football analytics yeah I mostly work in Python so it's the pandas numpy matplotlib scikit-learn sort of stack if I'm doing something Bayesian it's with pymc3 mostly nice stats models for the more sort of frequentist stuff. So pretty much most of my work's in Python. I do a little bit in R too. Mm-hmm. And it's nice to be able to at least know both, right? Sometimes there's a very well-posed R package for a problem that I would have to hand roll my own in Python. And so it's mm-hmm. nice to be able to go between the two, but I'm pretty much always in Python these days. Yeah. You talked already about your involvement in football analytics and when you start, but what are you doing exactly? And I'm wondering whether you have a, a specialty in that field? I do a handful of different things. Hmm. I don't know that I really have a specialty per se. So I write for a blog. I'm a contributor owner, I guess. American Soccer Analysis helped run it. And so we are focused on applying analytics to American soccer. So MLS, more recently, we've done more stuff with NWSL, which is the women's league. So I do that. I write a little bit more broadly occasionally. I've had some articles on the MLS league website, which has been cool. Yeah. Behind the scenes of the blog, rather than just writing, I do some of the data management, some of the DevOps sort of work. Yeah. And then I do consulting for pro teams too, which is really cool. So getting to work with the technical staffs there to sort of pro teams or pro leagues to sort of implement interesting projects that they might be interested in having. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's nice. Can you talk about what some of those projects were? Um, not really. <laughs> yeah, that's usually the problem. 
Yeah. Anyway, we have plenty other stuff to talk about, so it's no problem. Yeah, actually, you mentioned that you wrote some blog posts for the Major League Soccer website. And actually, you wrote recently a Soccer Analytics 101. And it's basically a guide on how data is giving teams competitive advantages on and off the pitch in the MLS. So what can you tell us about that? Which are these advantages? I think smart data science work, smart statistic work really has the ability to sort of improve any aspect of a soccer club. Sort of everything from scouting players to bring in to sports science and fitness to improving the way a team's academy, so way a team's sort of younger players, the way the academy runs, actually like on the field performance. So in the course of a game, play this way and not this way or do these things. Yeah. I think when done well, there's probably room for statistics to inform all sorts of different parts of the club. I do think, especially for MLS, one of the sort of highest leverage areas, the area where having an impact, doing something with statistics can have the largest impact on the club overall, is probably with transfers, right? So what players a team brings in and signs. Yeah. The gains you can have on the field from sports science or from taking a set piece a certain way are sort of marginal compared to how big a gain can be from like bringing in a good player. Hmm. It's really interesting in MLS too. So there's a salary cap yeah. in MLS. Um, so you can't just sign, you can't just, uh, like Barcelona, for example, can more or less sign whoever they want. Yeah. In MLS, you can't do that because you have to keep wages under the salary cap. But there's a roster mechanism called a designated player. Mm-hmm. So you can have three of them. And those players, their cap hit only counts up to like $500,000 or something, but you can pay them however much you want. Yeah. So teams, if they wanted, could basically have three sort of superstars that are going to have an outsized impact on the way teams perform. Yeah. And that's been around 15 years maybe now. But if you whiff on one of those or multiple of those designated players, a team's going to be really bad shape. Yeah. And traditionally, MLS teams' success rates on those transfers have been sort of wildly inefficient. Hmm. If you look back in the list, there's just like a terrible list of players who have come through as, as designated players at one time or another. And so I think analytics is probably a good way to improve the hit rate on those signings. Mm. It's an interesting classification problem, right? Yeah. You don't really care about false negatives. So if you predict that a guy is going to be bad, but it turns out he actually would have been good, like that's okay. There's a really wide universe of players you can sign. Yeah. What you really don't want are false positives. Mm. So you think a guy is going to be good and he actually turns out to be bad. Yeah. So it turns into a classification problem mm. where if you understand the risks appropriately, you can sort of come to a decent solution that stats can help inform. Yeah, that's awesome. That's really something we don't have in Europe yet, at least. (laughs) But it's my personal opinion. But I really think it's a smart way of having teams and then a league, which is more balanced in the end in the results and the strength of the teams. And it's actually quite ironic to see that in this instance, Europe is much more free capitalist than the US. In Europe, big clubs can do basically everything they want, and there's not really a big gap. There is the financial fair play now at the UEFA level, which has done a lot to tame down some budget wars. But we don't have these gaps on salaries and designated player system. And I think it's super interesting to have a league that in the end, in the long term, is more interesting to watch because you don't know at the beginning of the season which team is going to be the champion. Mm -hmm which in Europe is quite easy to do. In France, you can bet on on Paris. In Italy, you can bet on Juventus. Most of the national championships are not that uncertain now. Mm -hmm. 
I think we should go more into the American direction. But what's ironic is that here you have in the US a more constrained capitalist way of doing things with more rules, a more mechanistic way to help poorer teams perform better the year after that. Can you talk maybe about what happens at the end of a season? Because it's very different from Europe. You don't have teams which go down the league. They stay in the league, right? Right. But then what happens to balance things up again? Right. So the salary cap mechanism does a lot to ensure parity of teams. And it's absolutely the case. The season isn't a foregone conclusion. Even halfway through, a whole lot of different things can happen. Yeah. So there are a handful of different things that happen at the end of a season to help the worst performing teams. Mm. So you're right, there's no promotion relegation like there is in Europe. So the worst performing teams don't get sent down to a lower league. They get a little bit of a boost. They get certain extra roster mechanisms that will help them out in the next year, which are all sort of very complicated to explain, Yeah, like many of the roster mechanisms in MLS. So they get stuff like that to help them out. They get higher draft picks, like in other American sports. Although it's interesting, the draft in MLS is nowhere close to as influential as it is in other sports. It tends to be the case that most players who are good at soccer in high school mm. move or are already signed into teams academies or into professional teams, first teams, before they even have the chance to play in college. And so because of that, the player pool that is available in a draft isn't as good relative to the way that it works in the NBA, for example. And so the draft is not quite one of those mechanisms that has a big impact in improving parity year to year. Mm. Yeah, that's amazing. It always makes me laugh to see that it's kind of a welfare state for football, but it's in the US. So that's very ironic from a European point of view. Mm -hmm. There's certainly a lot of cognitive dissonance in the way owners of professional American teams would advocate for running the economy versus running sports leagues. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. That's always super interesting to watch. To go back to the blog post you wrote for the MLS, Soccer Analytics 101, and I'll put that in the show notes, by the way, for listeners, you say in there that analytics doesn't replace traditional scouting. What can you tell us about that? I think the above example is a good illustration. Yeah. The importance of transfer signings is a good illustration. So one way that stats can influence that process really well is sort of as a filter. You have this very large universe of players and a statistical model or machine learning model or whatever can be a good way to narrow down that very large universe of players into a handful of players maybe who fit very specific KPIs who the model believes will have a very good chance of success in the league. Yeah. And so I think that's probably then a good place to insert more traditional scouting. So mm. you've winnowed your list down to 10 or 15 players. Now let's let the scouts, let's let people who are, who are used to watching soccer actually watch those 10 or 15 players. We already believe that there's a good chance all 10 to 15 are going to be decent. So let's sort of let them take over and figure out which ones might be the best particular fit for a team versus watching. And yeah. so that sort of scales them a little bit better, right? They don't have to watch hours and hours of game tape for players that were never going to be any good to begin with. Yeah, exactly. So that makes their work a little bit better. And it can be a little bit more targeted. Yeah. You can say, you know, we believe this player will be exceptional at completing passes close to goal. So maybe you want to watch that specifically to try and verify that with your eyes. Or we believe this player is a little bit weaker in this other area. Mm. So why don't you watch that in particular to see how that works? So I think areas like that are probably where traditional scouting should still exist and makes the most sense to continue to be leveraged. Yeah, that's amazing. And actually, from a Bayesian workflow point of view, that marries very well with what I would do if I were to do such models. I don't know if you can do that or if you know if people do that in the MLS when they're working on these models, but 
I think it would be super valuable to have the scouts advice on prior elicitation so that you can ask them general questions on their area of expertise. Like what would you look for in a prospective decent player? What would be the most important thing? And okay, so this thing, which is going to be a parameter in the model, but they don't know that you just say, so this thing, what would be a decent value for you? What would you expect to see if the player is a good player or is going to be a good player? And then you can put that into the model. And then after the model has done its work, then you can send the scouts on the field, as you say, it's great. Yeah, that's one of the really cool things about Bayesian methods yeah. for me is that the model you actually implement has to come from like a really strong understanding of the data generating process because you're literally really going to be writing it out for the most part. And so that's where talking to scouts, talking to people that know and understand soccer really deeply, sort of leaning on your subject matter experts can really influence the actual math and stats work that you do. Yeah. Which is very cool. It's a very fun work to do. Yeah, this is awesome. Plus, I think it really helps non-technical people understand and accept the value of the models and the data analytics. And if you come to people talking like that and eliciting their expertise to put that in the model, you're going to make your work easy than when the model is telling, okay, so we think that these 10 players are pretty good players to watch. Would you be willing to go and watch them? If you have the scout into the workflow since the beginning, he's going to be much more willing to do that. He's not going to have an emotional reaction as you often see when models and computers come into a field. Okay, so the computer is going to take over my work and I'm going to be unemployed. So I have to fight against the computer and work so that the computer's never right in my field, you know. And then if you do what you told, you can have the best of both worlds. So I think in the long term, it's even better. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Sort of building that rapport and involving your subject matter experts in the sort of process, I think is pretty important. Yeah. Both from the mathematical perspective, you have to understand the process before you can model it, but then also organizationally, you want to make sure the people you're working with have buy-in with the process. Yeah, exactly. And actually, I'm wondering whether you, and that's a general you, which is people working in data analytics in football, did you have to fight to confront a big conservative coalition of scouts at the beginning when data started in the field? My prayer on that would be no, because I'm guessing that data analytics was there since the beginning of the MLS, because other sports in America, in the US are very data oriented. But I'm curious about that. I think applying data to soccer has like deep roots, but I think the sort of popular movement is relatively new. So it's just been something that's really been happening in the last 10 years. So it's not necessarily the case that MLS teams need buy-in. They haven't all bought into the usefulness of data and analytics. That's interesting. Yeah, I think within teams is a bait or an argument that's like still being fought. I can probably speak better publicly to it. There definitely is pushback. So MLS is interesting. I think there's more pushback from people doing analytics for European leagues, from the general public or from journalists or people who are already writing about the game, from maybe a less data-oriented perspective. I think there is pushback there, at the, maybe at the newness of it or about what that all entails. Yeah. I think there's less in MLS for a few reasons. Part of it is the newness. Football in Europe is based on a century of history or whatever. Yeah. In America, soccer, among the people who are most interested in consuming MLS, soccer has only really been popular for the last maybe 20 years or something. Yeah. And so those MLS fans are probably more open to sort of analytic methods. Yeah. 
which is cool. That's probably the case too with the people who write about the league. So there are a handful of journalists and sort of more traditional analysts who have all embraced using stats and analytics in their work, which is very cool. And I think that does owe a lot to the sort of newness of the thing and maybe some of the demographics of fans of the league. I see what you mean. That totally makes sense. We're going to talk about that later. It's on my list of questions for you. But first, before talking about that, I want to get a bit more into the weeds first. You had a very interesting sentence in your Soccer Analytics 101, which as a Bayesian, I couldn't miss, which was analytics should be tied closely to an understanding of the game. And we talked about that earlier. Clearly, as a Bayesian and as someone who try to think generatively, I couldn't agree more. But now I'm wondering about the most used techniques to do that. What do you usually use when you're working on a model? From the perspective of understanding soccer specifically? Yeah, exactly. A model about football analytics. Yeah, so just like we were talking about, right, it's really difficult to do that sort of modeling data science work in a domain without a really strong understanding of that domain. Having that understanding takes time and work. I grew up watching and playing soccer, but never quite in the analytic way that has been required by actually doing modeling on it. Mm. So it's hard to build up that understanding. You have to watch a whole lot of games with sort of a different eye is the right technique. Yeah. It is sort of a virtuous cycle. The more data statistics analytics work you do within soccer, the more you start to think about the game that way and then watch the game that way, which in turn influences the modeling that you actually want to do, which is nice. So it's something that takes a lot of practice. Now when I watch a game, I'm sort of specifically thinking about it in terms of the ways I might model it or the ways I might think about it sort of probabilistically. Mm. So the clearest case is when a player takes a shot from 40 yards out or something that has a very low probability of actually going into the goal, you might think, okay, what's the value of his alternatives in that scenario? Could he have played the ball somewhere else? And would those have been sort of a higher value action? Would those have done more to increase the probability of scoring than shooting from that point? So it comes down to sort of things like that, that then help get a better understanding of the game. But it's really sounded like watching a lot of soccer, reading a lot of smart writers who are writing about the ways to see the game. Yeah, that sounds like an interesting work, by the way. I'd love to do that. It's no problem. It's the sort of documentation that you like to read and hear about, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. It is fun getting paid to watch soccer sometimes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Actually, can you talk about the difference between using data in football versus using data in other sports like baseball or basketball? Is there a fundamental difference between these different fields, in your opinion? Some of the differences come down to the games themselves. Mm. Baseball is very discreet. It's all sort of one-on-one and very discretized actions that are taking place, right? So the specific methods that you might use to look at the game are going to be different. Yeah. Basketball is a bit more dynamic, a bit more flowing, but even there you have very discrete possessions. Mm. You might have sort of a set plays or a sets that might get run. So that's kind of maybe somewhere in the middle. Hockey is probably sort of the closest game to soccer, just in the, the extent to which it's sort of open and flowing and dynamic and back and forth. So the methods you use to study hockey might be similar to the methods that you're going to use to understand soccer. There are different interesting ways that hockey is different. There's not quite a meta game in hockey the way there is in soccer. Mm. In basketball, everyone is trying to do the same thing. They're all right, you're trying to score on the basket. But the ways that teams try to do that generally look pretty similar from one team to the next, right? They all might have the sort of exact same play that, that NBA teams run. Mm. And then hockey is sort of strict in that sense too. The way teams play generally all looks the same. You don't have sort of possession-oriented teams in hockey like you do in soccer. 
Mm -hmm. Soccer has teams that are going to want to hold a lot of the ball. The way they score is by very slowly moving it upfield close to goal. You might have other teams, right, who want to counterattack really quickly. So their defense sits very deep and then they wait to win the ball back. And when they do, they launch it downfield and try and get an attack going very quickly. The way teams play defense differs, right? You have teams that start with a very high line up the field. They want to high press and win the ball back very quickly and close to their opponent's goal. You have teams that sit in what might be like a middle block. So they're going to sit not quite as deep. They might still press once you get into their sort of zone. And so those sorts of strategies, metagames within soccer are interesting and different. And so that can inform the way the methods used for soccer, understanding soccer might be the same as hockey, but that informs the way that you might apply those methods in a little bit different way than what exists for hockey. Yeah, I see. That's fun to know. And I'm wondering, because a lot of the methods and techniques we we talked about are quite complex and complicated. So do you often have to communicate your results to non-technical populations? And how do you communicate your results to the different populations interested in football analytics? Because I'm guessing you have data people and scientists, but you also have business people and like scouts who are not well versed in the data, but know the game well. So how do you do that? And also, which concepts do you find are the most difficult to import? You're exactly right. There is really a wide scope of audiences that you might have to communicate these things to, particularly when I'm writing the blog, which is for a pretty analytically inclined audience, stuff I might do elsewhere, like the couple of things I've written for the league website, or for example, have to be a little general purpose, but I'm still writing for fans. Within consulting, you have to be able to explain stuff to coaches or a technical staff or a GM. And so there really is a wide variety of audiences that you have to be able to communicate to, which is difficult. I do think the underlying skills sort of across all that communication are the same. Yeah, You have to know the technical stuff really well, and then you have to know your audience really well too. And so you have to take a stuff because you sort of need that depth of knowledge to be able to translate it to whatever level of abstraction might be appropriate, for example. Mm. And you have to know your audience to understand what level of abstraction that might be for a particular person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Personally, the stuff that's most difficult for me is the technical stuff to a statsy inclined audience. It's the stuff I write on American Soccer Analysis on the blog. If I'm speaking to a soccer person, I don't have to worry about parting as much math. Yeah, I can sort of talk at a high level. You can hand wave away like modeling specifics, for example. You don't have to get into details like that. But when you're writing for that sort of like stats inclined fan, they probably want to know the way the algorithm or the way the model works under the hood or whatever. And so I have to know that really well. Recently, I did some work with Lime, locally interpretable model explainers, and trying to put those into terms that a more popular audience could grasp. It was really hard because I had to have sort of like a rock solid understanding of that concept. Yeah. And that's the most difficult scenario for me anyway, is the technical stuff, but describing it in a bit more deeper detail than what I would just give to a soccer person. That's interesting. I wouldn't have guessed that, but I can relate to that because you have another detail of math instead to give to this person to get them interested or to get them to believe your analysis and not be too much pessimistic, you know, about the model and too even nihilistic. Is that the right word? Yeah, I think that's right. 
nihilistic that's a hard word it's easier in french <laughs> yeah that makes sense you had kind of the same experience but it depends for instance i do some political forecasting and on that it's actually the other way around i'd say it's super super difficult to communicate with people who have a very well set mind about the political party in my experience it's almost impossible mm. <laughs> and it's a lot easier to do that with more technical people who are more interested in either on the political science side of things or on the statistical side of things. So yeah, I guess it depends on the topic, but I'm guessing also it could be difficult to explain that to a really hard set football fan, you know, mm -hmm. I can picture myself having some difficulty. I think that's true. The nice thing about writing for a blog is that I don't necessarily have to be concerned with writing to those people yeah. or addressing those people as an audience and Taylor more specifically. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Since we were talking earlier about Europe and the US, and that's something that I've been asking myself for a, for a while now, and I'm wondering whether there is a big difference between how football clubs use data in the US and how they use it in Europe. Because my prior on that is not very good for Europe, because I'm under the impression that, that Europe, at least continental Europe, I think Premier League is more advanced, in my opinion, from what I saw, which is not an expert. Compared to continental Europe, Premier League is more advanced. But compared to the US, Europe as a whole is behind the US in data analytics. Do you see the same thing as I do? And if yes, why is that? Well, so I'll preface this. I don't have a ton of insight into how European clubs are run and how they do data analytics. Yeah. I do think your intuition about England is right. The average Premier League club might be a little further along than the average top flight club in continental Europe. Yeah. I think maybe acceptance in the U.S. might be a bit further along than the average continental top flight team. Although I do think the teams that are doing it best in Europe are probably ahead of the best MLS teams. I mean, they just have way more resources. Liverpool, Barcelona, Manchester City. Yeah. I think their analytics departments are quite a bit further ahead than MLS. Mm. I think maybe the average MLS team is like slightly ahead of the average team elsewhere could be the case. I'm not sure. But there might be like more general sort of acceptance, at least, of analytics, even if the resources aren't there to put money behind building out departments. Yeah. Some of that's probably culture, which in the US is like decently statsy. Mm. And there's already been this sort of analytics revolution with baseball basketball is ahead of the game so some of that stuff sort of like primed the pump for these mls teams to get into that which is probably some of the reason exactly exactly while in europe well first in europe the biggest sports of all is football and this data revolution honestly hasn't come up yet i wouldn't say so and i think not a lot of people would disagree with that as you say i think only the biggest clubs at least in the on the continent of europe are using data analytics yeah, so we'll see because I think in Europe, maybe one of the only sports that come to mind who uses analytics a lot, I think, is golf. But I'm not sure about that. But that's good. It means there is a lot to do in Europe about that. But I think, honestly, I anticipate, and maybe it's also why this revolution hasn't come up yet. I really anticipate that there will be a lot more conservatism and kind of mistrust. I would expect there would be more mistrust in Europe because, as you say, football is much more a tradition in these countries. And mm -hmm. you have like 
clubs that are super old, half a century or even one century old. So that's hard to change behaviors in these areas. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it can be an exponential growth because if you see some clubs using data analytics and these clubs getting a competitive edge, as you say in Soccer Analytics 101, then the other clubs will adopt these techniques because they don't want to get behind because in Europe you can get relegated. So it's even worse if you're not jumping on the bandwagon when you have to. Mm -hmm. I think that's right. It'll be interesting. There's certainly a lot of like institutional inertia built up to doing things a new way. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how Liverpool works as an example. Yeah. They've been very public about the extent to which they do use stats to inform the way the club runs. So it'll be interesting to see whether that filters down to the rest of Europe. Yeah, and actually Liverpool is one of the most vocal clubs I've heard about that topic. I mean, PSG in France, I've never heard them talk about that. It's really weird. But yeah, that makes me a little concerned, by the way, because Liverpool is already the first or second team in Europe. And if they get an even better competitive advantage through data analytics, could make the leagues even more unequal than they are right now. So Sure, yeah, sure. If teams at the top can afford to spend millions of dollars building out a department and buying data. Yeah. It's interesting at MLS, right? That's money that doesn't count against a salary cap. Mm. So you'd think that would be a smart place to try and spend if you you want to increase your competitiveness? Yeah, clearly. I know that makes me a little more concerned about inequality in the European leagues. Actually, we're getting short on time and I have other questions for you. And a question I like to ask the guests is, what are the most common difficulties you encounter with your models and data and how do you usually solve them? So getting data in the right format and then feature engineering. Hmm. Those are like related along with posing the problem in a way that makes it solvable. Mm -hmm. I think are sort of the three like very closely interrelated things. Then that's maybe where the most difficulty is. Yeah. Actually applying a model to the thing is not always that difficult. It's a bit more tricky when you're using sort of a Bayesian method or something and not just throwing a second learn algorithm at it or something. Mm -hmm. But I think it's in that like data engineering, feature engineering stuff that's tricky, right? You need the very firm sort of understanding of the data generating process that can help you like actually pose the problem you're trying to solve in a way that's tractable. And then you have to like actually massage your data into the right format to speak to that yeah. problem, right? So it's a good example. Maybe like a lot of times in soccer, you have an idea of pace or tempo. Mm -hmm. So if you're interested in seeing how that contributes to creating chances, it might be like an interesting research problem, right? How does pace contribute to scoring goals? But yeah. Pace is like a loaded word that everyone in soccer intuitively knows, but no one has a well-defined definition. And so if you want to put that into a problem you can actually solve, you need to like land on a definition and then express that definition in the data with the right features. And then after all of that work, you can put it into a model to actually maybe approach an answer for. Mm -hmm. And so it's that process before pulling everything together to define the problem itself, I think that's the most difficult for me anyway. Yeah, clearly. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> Do you have a favorite model or method when you're working on these football analytics? You know, a model that you're always happy to use and can share with us? I like GBMs. They're just so flexible. One thing that's nice, they can even handle like spatial stuff if you do the hyperparameter mm -hmm. tuning really well. And so throwing them at data on a soccer field, right, with XY coordinates and stuff, your GBM can actually learn regions of the field that might impact whatever it is you're modeling, which is very nice. Yeah. So that's usually the first model I turn to for supervised modeling problem. Oh, nice. Maybe for listeners, can you explicit the uh, GVMs? Oh, yeah. So gradient boosting machines. It's like a random forest, but instead of each decision tree being random, each decision tree is proving on the overall predictions from the tree before it, hence the boosting. Yeah. So it combines some nice features from random forests with a bit more target learning. Yeah. 
and how interpretable are these kinds of models? GPMs depend. So you can use methods to try to divine what it is that it's actually learned, right? So partial dependency plots will speak to that. Lime, what I mentioned earlier, will help you parse out the effects of certain variables on the actual outcome. The power behind GBMs is that they're leveraging all of these sorts of interactions, right? That's why you're, you're building trees and forests. Mm -hmm. And so something like Lime will give you the extent to which your variable of interest or your outcome variable changes according to like a linear change in your covariates or whatever. So you can use some stuff. They're not necessarily as interpretable out of the box as something like just a logistic regression, but, but you can apply tools on top of it to get more explainability and interpretability. Yeah, super interesting. I could go on for hours about that, but we're getting short on time and you've already been very generous with your time. So I want to ask you one last question before we go on the last two questions. I'm wondering, where do you see the future of football analytics going uh, and which advances are particularly exciting to you? So just since the pandemic happened, there's been a lot of really cool public work done with tracking data. Yeah. So done with that data that describes the location of the players on the field multiple times per second or whatever. And it's getting easier to get your hands on some of that tracking data, at least for research purposes. Yeah. So I think we're going to see, we're already seeing more cool stuff come out of that. And I think that's probably where the next sort of very cool and cutting edge advances will be with soccer analytics is stuff that you can do with tracking data. So one cool thing is pitch control model. So in what areas of the field, given a configuration, here's where all the players are, here's where the ball is, in what areas of the field does each particular team have control? So if you play the ball into that area, will the team retain possession or whatever? So that can be useful for understanding the runs a player makes. How does that influence the amount of space that a team has to work with? Mm. So stuff like that I think is valuable and we'll see more work in the near future. Yeah, that's awesome. Can't wait to see that. Okay, Kevin, before letting you go, I have to ask you the two questions I ask every guest at the end of the show. So the first one is if you had unlimited time and resources, which problem would you try to solve? Is this, for argument's sake, are we like say all meaningful problems in the world have been solved? So I can't just devote all of my resources to ending hunger. You can do whatever you want. Oh, okay. Well, we'll just say hypothetically that all of those like truly meaningful problems are solved. I am a bit different tech. I'm really interested in work on immersive storytelling, so mm. using augmented reality, virtual reality to tell stories. And mm. I think there's a very cool space for artificial intelligence to inform that in really interesting ways. I think the work being done there right now is super cool. So if I had like six months of free time, maybe the same way I did when I first picked up soccer analytics... I would spend it doing AR, VR development and computer vision problems. I think it'd be very cool to work on. Oh, yeah. That sounds like fun, especially when you're quarantined. So Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Maybe you should do that right now, actually. Yeah, I'm trying to carve out more time for it. <laughs> yeah, for the next quarantine, you know, in October or stuff like that, at least we'll have that, you know. Sure, sure. <laughs> okay, the second question is if you could have dinner with any great scientific mind, dead, alive or fictional, who would it be? I bend the rules on scientific and say Jim Henson, so the Muppets creator, mm -hmm. who, right, who's an inventor and definitely had a mechanical mind. Mm -hmm. So I'd go with him, like creativity with his inventor's mind. And then like the sort of spark and curiosity he had to mm -hmm. sort of animate all of that, I think was incredible. And so I love to have had or to have in this hypothetical scenario dinner with Jim Henson. Nice choice. Okay, Kevin, thank you for taking the time. I learned a lot about football analytics. I'm sure listeners did too. As a football fan, I always enjoy talking about it. So when it's tied with statistics, well, 
it's heaven on earth. <laughs> As usual, I put the resources and a link to your website in the show notes for those who want to dig deeper, especially the link to your Soccer Analytics 101. Thank you again, Kevin, for taking the time and being on this show. Yeah, thanks so much. You bet. Bye. This has been another episode of Learning Bayesian Statistics. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcatcher and visit learnbasestats.envol.app for more resources based on today's topics as well as access to more episodes that will help you reach true patient state of mind. That's learnbasestats.envol.app. Our theme music is Good Patient by Baba Brinkman, Fit MC Lars, and Megaram. Check out his awesome work at babababrinkman.com. I'm your host, Alex Endora. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Endora, like the country. You can support the show and unlock exclusive benefits by visiting patreon.com slash stats. Thanks so much for listening and for your support. You're truly a good Bayesian. Change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian. Change calculations after taking fresh data in. Those predictions that your brain is making, let's get them on a solid foundation.